Matthew 18. We've been in a series, of course, the last two weeks there's been other messages brought, um, well, uh, Bruce and, and, and uh, Peter, um, both excellent messages, so grateful for their care for you. Um, and, uh, but aside from that, in, in, in general, been in a series called Advancing the Gospel of the Kingdom, and within that series, the last uh, two messages, and then this one, are subtitled Kingdom Culture. And uh, so if you would, we're going to uh, be in Matthew 18, uh, focusing in on verses 12 through 17, uh, really in particular verses 15 through 17, but we'll begin reading in 12, uh, and then we will pray. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the ninety-nine that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. If your brother or sister sins against you, and I, by the way, I, ESV just has brother, but should be or sister. Context bears that out. Sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and he or she alone, him or her alone. If uh, he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Please join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, as we approach this text, I think there are two things that ought to be acknowledged. One, I can speak for myself that I find these instructions um, easier to disregard than to regard, to disobey than to obey. They seem so impractical in the moment. And two, we should acknowledge that they've been abused by many to do many evil things. And so we need your guidance and help even as we explore them today. In Jesus' name, amen. I don't speak today as someone who has mastered the practices outlined in this chapter, but as one who has caused damage to relationships by not practicing them. So let's be clear about that. I'd like to be able to stand up here and say, I'm doing pretty well with this. Um, no. I've harmed others by my disobedience to these verses and have been harmed by others' disobedience to these instructions. In my preparation, my own heart was being laid bare by the Spirit of God. And I've begun going one-to-one -one with any that I've had an offense. And as I've done so, it, it, honestly, it's like taking weights off my back and lightening my burden. My appeal today is that you would join me on that journey as a means of pursuing the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Amen? Matthew 18 is the so-called chapter on church discipline, though that may be a tad misleading. The instructions are given to you, singular, when one might expect them to be given to you, all, plural. 
Interestingly, so many times in the New Testament, the instruction is to you plural, and we often take them as you singular, but here they are to you singular. It's a personal responsibility. The verses that precede what we've read have to do with the importance of not pursuing greatness, the significant consequences of causing a little one, an insignificant one, a not-so-great one to fall away. Here, in the verses we read, the attention is turned toward those who observe another strain off the path. Now, of course, it could apply to any path, but in context, we might wonder which path, and I think it's that path of pursuing insignificance, of that path of pursuing childlikeness, that path toward earthly greatness rather than kingdom greatness, might be the very way that at least Jesus had in mind in that context. R.T. France notes that Matthew 18 is not so much a manual of discipline as a guide to relationships. It is only in verses 15 through 17 that specific procedures are set out, and those are not so much disciplinary as pastoral, he writes. Frederick Dale Bruner in the church book, his second part of his commentary on Matthew, he summarizes the whole context this way, quote, three self-denial stories, which he goes back to the end of chapter 17. So there are three stories in a row on self-denial, the temple tax story, the take the lower position, don't cause anyone to stumble. Three self-denial stories are followed by three other-seeking stories. So self-denial, other-seeking. Um, and, and those, of course, are the wandering sheep, going after the lost sheep, the erring brother, the, the text uh, verses uh, 15 through 17 that are a part of our text. And then, of course, the following parable, the unforgiving or unmerciful servant. In other words, this chapter is less about procedure than the heart that needs to drive the process. Less about church discipline than it is about forgiveness and relationship. Less about removing people from the church and more about pursuing the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. If, if one approaches our text seeking to deal with someone's sin, it will not produce the results that Jesus intended. If one approaches our text seeking reconciliation with one's brother or sister, it may well produce the relationships that God intends. Intent matters. What we intend to do with it matters. Why? Because as another author, Ian Paul, states clearly, quote, the whole aim of the exercise is not to win an argument, but to win the person. The opposite of the possibility mentioned in the previous verses that they should be lost. The goal is that they should be one, in other words. So following the process outlined in this chapter won't solve every relationship problem. We think it does, we're, we're just deceived. It won't solve every relationship problem. But it will reduce the damage that is done by sin. The steps are designed to prevent a culture of perfectionism as well, which we'll see as we walk through it. Uh, although even though th these verses have been used to create cultures of perfectionism, that is the opposite of their intent. So we're going to explore our text under four headings. Uh, the first, modifying the objective. Second, minimizing shame. Third, maximizing opportunity. And finally, maintaining a posture of 
forgiveness. And um, so if you would join me under the first heading, Modifying the Objective, or what I might call Moses 2.0. Moses said in uh, Deuteronomy 18 that there is one who would come after him that would be greater than him. And the New New Testament makes clear that that one is Jesus. He is the new Moses, if you will. And we see this in Matthew's Gospel, and it starts quite early in Matthew's Gospel. You have Jesus going up on a mountain in Matthew chapter 5 and calling his disciples to him. Now, Moses went up on a mountain. He didn't call anyone up there with him. He went up there alone, and he received not, he didn't give out, but he received the law from God. But Jesus goes up, calls the disciples, and he's the one doing the talking. It's a little different than Moses. He's the one giving the law. The Sermon on the Mount, as we, we, we might describe it, is in effect, some sense, a new law. You have heard that it was said, you might be familiar with these phrases repeated several times in the fifth chapter. You have heard that it was said, but I say to you. You know, you've heard it said, quote Moses, but I say to you. Or heard that it was said, quote, some way that Moses had been applied, but I say to you. He wasn't undoing what Moses said or contradicting it, but he was bringing a greater truth or bringing it to its true intent. Well, our text, in a manner of speaking, is another you've heard that it was said, but I say to you, because it has a background in the law with Moses. In verses 15 through 17, especially in context, they stand in stark contrast to a very similar procedure established through Moses. And let's just read a couple of places where we find this. Deuteronomy 17 and verses 2 through 7 we read, If there is found among you within any of your towns that the Lord your God has given you, a man or woman who does what is evil in the sight of the Lord your God in transgressing his covenant and has gone and served other gods and worshipped them or the sun or the moon or any of the hosts of heaven which I have forbidden, and it is told you, and you hear of it, then you shall inquire diligently. And if it is true, certain that, and certain that such an abomination has been done in Israel, then you shall bring out to your gates that man or woman who has done this evil thing, and you shall stone that man or woman to death with stones. On the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses, the one who, has, uh, who is to die shall be put to death. A person shall not be put to death on the evidence of one witness." The hand of the witnesses shall be first against him to put him to death. Um, And afterward, the hand of the people. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. And then in Deuteronomy 19, one not quite as dramatic, but similarly, beginning in verse 15, a single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only in the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. If a malicious witness arises to accuse a person of wrongdoing, then both parties to the dispute shall appear before the Lord, before the priests and the judges who are in office in those days. The judges shall inquire diligently, and if the witness is a false witness and has accused his brother falsely, then you shall do to him as he has uh, had meant to do to his brother so you shall purge the evil from your midst. Now, very important legislative practices, no doubt. 
But you notice there isn't any mention of forgiveness in there, reconciliation. The goal is to decide whether or not you kill them in the first case, punish them in some way in the other. And so while Jesus isn't saying, hey, Moses was wrong, he is saying, hey, we've got the wrong idea here. <laughs> Something's amiss. The goal in Matthew 18, what makes it radically new from what Moses under the law did, is that its goal is always reconciliation and forgiveness. Now, it might be that that won't be achieved. But the overwhelming context of, of that chapter is that that is always what is before you and is in pursuit. And there is no mention of putting anyone to death. So that's kind of important, I might suggest. In Deuteronomy, the goal and outcome is condemnation and punishment. In some cases, death. In Matthew, it is forgiveness and life. In Deuteronomy, the goal is human justice. In Matthew, the goal is reconciliation with a brother or sister. In Deuteronomy, the path to purity is purging the evil brother or sister from our midst. In Matthew, the ideal path to purity is forgiveness of sins. Indeed, a refusal to forgive, as the parable to follow indicates, may be the worst kind of person that needs to be purged from our midst because the punishment there is the harshest punishment given in the entire chapter. And that's the person unwilling to forgive those who repent. The two or three witnesses in Matthew 18 serve a different objective than that in Deuteronomy. In Deuteronomy, they can only testify to the guilt of the person. In Matthew, they're not actually witnesses in the same sense that they are in Deuteronomy. They didn't see anything take place. They're brought by someone to say, hey, we're going to go and approach this person, this brother or sister about this thing. I need you to come with me. They're there to hear both parties out. They guard against specious requirements, preventing one party from holding another to mere superficial requirements of obedience or false charges. We're all prone to false reasoning about how others should live. Like the Pharisees, we may want to require conformity to rules which we have created rather than those which come from God. One might be offended that another brother or sister plays cards, just to use a, a, a well, historic offense that has existed, while another is fine with playing cards. It would be a sin for the one whose faith does not allow card playing to do so, but they cannot hold another to do, to do the same. You might think that example silly, but we all, we all have pharisaical tendencies that we don't think are silly, but anyone else looking on might. We build fences around the law, you know, lest we get too close to breaking it. You know, that, 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 you're getting so close, and so you can't do that. But the Bible doesn't forbid this. It maybe forbids this sin over here, and, but we want to hold others to it. And so we create external measures of righteousness to which we hold that. And I think the process in Matthew 18 is intended to root that out. In fact, you really see a... a you see Matthew 18 in practice in a broader scale, a more kind of cosmic scale, when uh, Paul is being accused of, you know, error in his teaching because he's not requiring Gentiles to be circumcised. And you have these, 
you know, uh, Judean Ju uh, Hebrews that are down there, the Aramaic Hebrews, are, they're saying, hey, you're, you're wrong, they need to be circumcised. So he ends up going to Jerusalem, and those accusers are there too, and they're, they're making their accusations before the church. I mean, two or three had already gone to Paul, probably more than that, and, and they weren't getting anywhere with Paul. Paul was like, no, I'm not, not making them get circumcised. So they, they end up in Jerusalem, and they're making their accusations before the apostles. And when it was all said and done, the apostles said, yeah, yeah, no, that's not a righteous requirement of God. Forget it. He's fine. Go ahead and, and do that. And here are the things you need to remember. That's my paraphrase summary of Acts 15. But a bit loose, but I think it gets to the point. If, if we view Matthew 18 as a means of dealing with troublemakers or unruly believers in the church rather than a means of winning them over, we're still living under the law and not the Spirit. We've, we've, we've got the wrong goal in mind. Jesus modified the objective, and another benefit of the process that he puts into place is that he minimizes shame. He minimizes shame. Let me read verses 15, through, 15 and 16 again. If your brother or sister sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. And if he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. This process outline minimizes the potential shame of the person suspected of sin. Floyd Filson in Black's New Testament commentary points out that these first two steps cause the presumed sinner as little public shame as possible. You bring one or two others. One or two others. Compare this to the more typical methods to which we are all prone. Now, maybe you're not prone, but I can tell you that I'm prone, okay? So I'll just put it out there. This is my natural tendency. Horrible as it is. And maybe you know somebody like this, but don't talk about, anyone, about it to anyone else, please. It goes something like this. Discuss whatever you've seen somebody else do with at least two people for the purpose of receiving counsel, of course, before going to the person. This is really not for that person's benefit at all. It's for our benefit. We want to make sure that we are right in going to them. We are protecting our reputation, not the other person's. Because if I went to them and it turned out that it was in error, well, then I might be embarrassed. So the only person I'm protecting is me. And that's the counsel that I'm seeking. Martin Franzmann, in his commentary on Matthew titled, Follow Me, explains the importance of going to a brother or sister at first alone. He says, quote, He tells the brother first alone. Even here, when the little one has sinned, he cannot despise him and dare not risk ruining him by a sharp and pitiless exposure of his sin. He works to win the sinner, not to degrade him. Not to degrade him. Back to where we are, to what we are prone to do. So after going to them, going to two or three people and talking to them, um, we go to the person alone, and if that fails, we talk to the people we talked to before and possibly add several other people to the party, we're doing the very thing that James warned against in his letter. Our tongue is a spark setting the whole world on fire. With our methods, by the time that it is brought to the church, there's no point in telling it to the church. They already know. 
It's just silliness at that point. It's a charade. Our methods start by assuming we are correct and building an impenetrable prosecution so that by the time one gets to the, brother, uh, to the broader group, there is no reasonable defense that could be made. Not only would the person have to defend against the facts, but against dozens of ghosts as well. It's also important to note that Matthew 18 does not account for every situation. I mean, it is not, you, you, it's not a one-size-fits-all. Like, Matthew 18, that covers every situation. No, no, it doesn't. It gives you enough sense to maybe understand some things in every situation, but it doesn't cover every situation. When one must choose between protecting the person accused and protecting vulnerable victims, you must choose to protect the victims. And I'm speaking here about abuse. You know, I'm not going to apply Matthew 18 line by line in an abuse situation because I may neglect protecting a child or a wife who's being abused. I mean, there are situations that call us to other measures. But it is what should be applied in the vast majority of the situations we find ourselves in with other believers, the very things that tear churches apart. So, so those exceptions are no excuse for not practicing it. Um, why, you might ask, and that's a good question, why is it important to minimize shame? Well, one, because we're called to love our brother and sister. I mean, how can I love them if I'm shaming them? I, mean, I think that's at least on the surface obvious. Again, Franzman captures the importance of it when, when he writes that, quote, No sinner shall be needlessly degraded, that no sinner's fate shall be committed to the subjectivity of any one man, but shall be the concern of the collective love and sobriety of the whole church. See, if, if, if we just allow somebody to be shamed by somebody who saw eventually... This one person is controlling the whole congregation's attitude about this situation and this person. The process outline puts greater risk on the shoulders of the person who brings the concern to the erring brother or sister. I don't get to vet my concerns with others. This is not an option there. I have to go to the brother or sister where I ought to be. I'll be less confident in what I'm saying, but that gives the other person a greater sense of being cared for. Yeah, it'd be one thing if I go to them and I, I've got a, I mean, a lockdown argument. It's impenetrable. No matter what they say, I've got them. I've nailed it. That is not the goal. That is not good. Polished and airtight arguments only make for a better chance of condemning the brother or sister, not winning them. I think this gets to why, for instance, um, Curtis Heffelfinger uh, in the Peacemaking Church, uh, whenever possible, he says to, that we are to relate in person and not through some form of media, some other form of media. In their book, Difficult Conversations, the authors of that book say, quote, email is a wildly efficient way to keep in touch. For the day-to-day -day task of keeping up with a friend or moving a project forward, it's just about perfect. But ask email to do anything even slightly more complicated in a relationship, and you can quickly run into trouble. Email isn't dialogue. It's serial monologue. 
There's no opportunity to interrupt for clarification, to see the other's reaction and correct course, and to test our assumptions about their intentions before locking into our interpretation and emotional reactions. Email doesn't convey tone of voice, facial expressions, or body language, all of which help us make sense of the sender's intentions. End quote. And I, and I might add one more thing to this list of problems with written format. Since such written formats usually lay out an entire argument, they often require the recipient to defend against not just the initial assumption, but numerous other assumptions that have been built upon it. And if at any point in the argument there's a false assumption, you're now required to defend against six or seven other assumptions before you even get to the one that is actually in question. And it sets you up. You're kind of, forgive me for saying so, but damned if you do and damned if you don't. Because at that point, all you can be is defensive. Well, look, you're just being defensive. Well, of course I am. Yeah. <laughs> look at what's been waged against me. What else is a person to do? I mean, the alternative, yes, it's all true. <laughs> that doesn't get you very far either, does it? If circumstances require one to use a written format, and sometimes they will. I mean, I just have to acknowledge sometimes they will. I can rec recommend no better source or resource for how to approach that than a book titled The Heart of a Servant Leader by Jack Miller, or C. John Miller is how I think it is on the book title. Um, it's a collection of letters which he wrote to the missionaries which he cared for as director of World Harvest Mission. Um, I considered actually just taking and reading a few of those letters, but they're rather lengthy. Uh, but boy, you know, if time would have allowed, I'd have taken the extra 10 minutes just to read them. Just brilliantly written. And if you want an enjoyable book to read that will really help you understand what care looks like and leadership looks like, I, I would highly recommend that. Highly recommend that book. I often have people ask me, What's a good book on leadership? And I refer them to that one. They come back about a third of the way in going like, this doesn't seem to be about leadership. And I'm like thinking, well, no, it actually is. And therein may be the problem, right? I mean, it's all about leadership, but it's not what we thought leadership was about. So not only are we to minimize shame, we must maximize opportunity for repentance. Maximizing opportunity is our third heading. The, the, the other things which this process outlined in Matthew 18 does, and I'm speaking particularly the process in verses 15 through 17 about going to a brother, going with one or two others, bringing it to the church. The other thing that it does is that it maximizes opportunity for repentance and or understanding. One goes privately before anyone else is involved. This minimizes the shame to either party. Even the accuser can withdraw their accusation without anyone else knowing anything about it. However, by going a second time, if needed, with one or two others, it provides yet another opportunity where there's been a minimal exposure of anyone involved, and they can have others weigh in with them to either say, yes, this is a problem, or to say, actually, no, I don't think they're in error. Finally, that, that itself is not sufficient if that discussion results in a brother or sister refusing to repent or not seeing it or however you want to view it, when the two or three all believe it is necessary, then it should go to the congregation. Why? 
Because surely, if, if this is a believer, this person would be persuaded by the congregation. It also provides another way to protect against the yeast of the Pharisees that requires conformity to the rules which we have created, rather than those which come from God. Maybe the congregation will smoke out specious requirements, preventing some from holding others to mere superficial requirements of obedience. Some in the congregation may have contrary evidence that clears the person of the charge. And even when one refuses to listen to the church, the instruction is to the individual, singular, you. You, singular, must treat them as an outsider. That is done in hopes that they would come to repentance. It also makes space for the fact that they ultimately stand before the Lord. You don't stone them or harm them in any way, and you have to entrust that the Lord will be the one who deals with it. Another way that this process maximizes opportunity for the sinner, since we aren't gossiping about what we've, quote, observed with others out of, quote, concern, is that the offense doesn't grow to gargantuan size in this process. The offense often, the way we usually go about things, by gossiping and gathering, you know, we, we, we start with this offense. That by the time we're bringing anything to the church, it's so big nobody could escape it. It's an imagined beast. And because it hasn't grown to gargantuan size, even in the process we may realize, you know, love can cover this. Love can cover this. By the way, I think it's important to note, elders are given the same protections as congregants, which is another way of saying elders are people too. Or maybe even better said, elders are little ones too. Because this is the process for little ones that might be going astray. And in 1 Timothy, Paul writes, Do not accept an accusation against an elder unless it be confirmed by two or three witnesses. Those guilty of sin must be rebuked before all as a warning to the rest. So even elders are given the same fair treatment. I mean, they're exposed to so much more opportunity for people to make their observations but they must be gone to privately and then with one or two others along with them. Now, in Timothy, Paul might be speaking about a more formal process, but it still confirms that leaders are subject to greater scrutiny and therefore are afforded the same protection. One must go alone, then with two, one or two others. We must minimize shame. We must maximize opportunity for repentance. And we must maintain a posture of forgiveness. And we'll close with this final point. Remember, we talked about earlier, Jesus modified the objective in Matthew 18 from what Moses had given in the law. Now, here, New, new Covenant, the goal is always forgiveness and reconciliation of the sinner and not condemnation and death. It seems like the Corinthian church at one point had forgotten that because you may recall there was somebody that put out of the church because of sin, who had repented, and they weren't letting them back in. And Paul, Paul said, listen, yeah, enough is enough. Let them back in. Forgive them. They, they forgot that forgiveness was so vital. Peter seems to have understood the point. For his next question, after Jesus walks through all of this in Matthew 18, is this. Lord, how often will my brother or sister sin against me and I forgive him? 
as many as seven times? And Peter thought he was being generous. Like, that, that would be a lot, right, Lord? Like, I mean, you're, you're really asking us to go to ridiculous measures seven times. I mean, Peter was a realist, too. I mean, surely there must be a limit to this. How can you maintain purity in a church that is so willing to forgive? And Jesus said to him, we read in verse 22, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Or, as likely as not, it could be read 70 times seven times. That's a bunch. Either way, the point is clear, especially in light of the parable that follows, that there must be no limit to our willingness to forgive those who profess repentance. Our posture must always be a pursuit of reconciliation. To do otherwise is to put ourselves at odds with God. Now, again, just to be clear and aside, a footnote, lest you think otherwise, there are certain sins which, while we may want the person reconciled and forgiven by God, we do not just let them go ahead and associate with the potential victims of their sin. Forgiveness does not always mean you treat them as if everything's que sera, sera. Okay? And I just say that as an aside, but that's not the vast majority of issues we deal with. The vast majority are the ones that we just don't want to forgive, and we must. And we must restore them to fellowship. And to do otherwise, according to the parable, is to put ourselves at odds with God. You probably remember the parable. It's that one where, you know, a, a, a man comes and he's got uh, somebody who owes him. It's a king and, he's, you know, he's, this guy owes him what would be the equivalent of our national debt, which he could never repay. And he's going to throw him in prison and sell his wife into slavery and so on, wife and children. And, and, and the man begs his forgiveness. He gets forgiven. And then he goes out and he finds a fellow servant that owes them, you know, maybe five grand, ten grand, something of significance, but not vastly significant in the same sense that it could never be repaid. It could be repaid. It's going to be costly, but it's going to be repaid. And he requires repayment. Guy can't repay it. He throws him into prison. Well, needless to say, the first guy is told what happened, and he said, fine, you're going to prison, and they're going to throw away the key, basically. That's the short version of that story. And the point is, is that given the vast amount of mercy we've received, we must be a forgiving, merciful people. Amen. Franzman, at the, in talking about that parable, concludes, quote, Forgiveness is the ground the, disciples walk, the disciple walks on and the air he breathes. He exists only on terms of forgiveness. The word of forgiveness which... The church hears, fills the church with forgiveness. If the disciple violates the fellowship with the brother whom God has placed beside him, he forfeits his fellowship with God. We have to maintain a posture of forgiveness, and attitude is vital for this to be effective. France notes that, quote, within such a community of, of Jesus' followers, there is opportunity both to harm and to care for others, and the health and effectiveness of the group will depend on the attitudes toward one another that are fostered. So we can harm or care for others as we try to live these things out, and our heart attitudes are vital in doing that. 
Matthew 18 presents us with an opportunity to, to harm or care for others. Paul's exhortation to the Galatians that we covered a couple of, of my messages ago, about four weeks ago now, was that any restoration of someone who sins must be done in a spirit of gentleness. We learn from James the vital importance of guarding our tongues because they can wreak, wreak havoc on the entire cosmos in which we live. Or put more simply in modern vernacular, loose lips sink ships. Loose lips sink the ships of relationship. But there's good news. It was false accusations and a sham court that handed Jesus over to be crucified. Fear of man, pursuit of self-greatness, pride, and legalism were all in play. Yet Jesus prayed, Father, forgive them. They do not know what they are doing. Not only that, God used the very outcome of their destructive behavior to provide salvation for all who would believe. Thanks be to God. There is forgiveness available to us, and there is a path forward that is paved with the grace and love of our Lord Jesus. And finally, it's important to pursue every opportunity to forgive. Because when we don't, when we sit on something and brood over it, it weighs us down. These weights accumulate until we are weighed down, imprisoned by them. And it's essential that we take Jesus seriously and maximize opportunity for dealing with things. Well, the temptation after a sermon like this is to think about all the ways others have failed to live up to it. You know, that I know someone in this regard, and then graciously change. When should love cover? When, when should love truly cover? Who do we need to sit down with and ask questions that are genuine inquiries? Are there those with whom we have elevated things prematurely to whom we need to ask forgiveness? One of my elementary teachers, and some of you are wondering, how can you remember that far back? But I can. One of my elementary teachers, who was a nun, told a story explaining the damaging impact of gossip, and it's never left me. It went something like this. A person who had spoken to someone about the sin of another, who had then told another, and so on and so forth, until the whole uh, town knew what had gone on, went to the confessional. If you understand how that works in Catholic, you go into a, a box, there's a priest in another box, can't see who you are, very private, confess this sin of gossiping and, and, and ask for forgiveness. The priest granted absolution with penance as follows. Take a feather pillow on a windy day. Go outside and slice it open so that the wind blows the feathers all over the neighborhood. Then collect all the feathers and put them back in the pillow. Well, it's kind of hard to undo gossip, isn't it? be kind of hard to collect all those feathers. I think the point, though, is much like that which James makes in his letter and helps to explain why Jesus outlined the process that we've looked at today that involves going directly to the person that we have a concern with and talking with them. Let's pray. Father, as we 
As we explore these things, no doubt we don't perfectly understand them all. No doubt I certainly don't. But we desire to pursue the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. And you've commanded that of us. And so we endeavor to set out to do so. And so, Lord, let us be a people who are quick to forgive, quick to pursue graciously. In Jesus' name, amen.